History Film Club, the podcast about period dramas and history and how it all appears on screen. I'm Alex von Tunzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and historical advisor to film and television. So the History Film Club is a club of very, very exclusive membership just for people who really, really love history and film. And we're very excited to have our applicant today, um, who is Professor Amanda Vickery. Professor of Early Modern History at Queen Mary University of London, a renowned expert in the 18th century of women's history. Um, Amanda is the prize-winning author of books including Gentleman's Daughter about women's lives in Georgian England and Behind Closed Doors about life at home with the Georgians. She's also a TV and radio presenter who has herself on the 18th century to love screen. Generally, she is the most expert expert in all things 18th century, as well as a lover of film and fashion. Hello, Amanda. Welcome to the History Film Club and to our headquarters today. Thank you for having me. We're really excited uh, to show you around the club and to have a chat about history and film. Um, and I think particularly, you know, given your expertise in the Georgians, they're so often what we see on screen. Almost every year, it feels like there's a yet another drama on our screen or in production that focuses on the late 18th or early 19th century. And, you know, quite often it seems to be Austin, another Austin, and yet another Austin. Often the same um, novels done again and again. Why is it that we have this kind of real public obsession with this particular image of the Georgians and the Austin stories in particular, do you think? Well, I think first you have to go to the novels themselves. I mean, it's a really interesting question. How did six courtship novels establish such a hold on the popular imagination. There are very few other authors, I think, who combine um, lit such literary excellence and some such worldwide reach, probably only Shakespeare, perhaps the Brontes. So I think, first of all, I think there's something about those novels that we need to think about. And it's fascinating because after all, we don't really know if um, Austen was ever kissed. She was certainly a virgin when she died. So she's a Hampshire spinster who died aged 41. And she lived in a small village and her closest adult relationship with, was with her sister, Cassandra. But I think what the novels demonstrate is not a kind of romantic expression of you know, the true self of the author, what they show is the power of her extraordinary literary imagination, her, her technical skill, and the fact that she constructed these six novels that work like clockwork. They're like Rolls-Royce engines. But I think what's made them so um, attractive over the centuries is the fact that she doesn't fill them with lots of set dressing and detail. You don't even know what the eye colour is of most of her heroines. We only know that Emma's eyes are the true hazel. And that allows the reader to kind of insert themselves into the plots. There's just a lot of space in those novels for the individual to breathe. And so they can be moved around and um, they can be set as in the uh, version. My favourite Jane Austen adaptation actually is um, of Emma transposed into Southern California as Clueless. And it, it works perfectly well because what, what Austen is not about, I think, is about tinkling teacups. 
she's about psychological realities and perfectly tuned plots. So I think that's why it works for TV. Um, why they've appealed to different generations on TV is a slightly different question, I think. Sometimes they're, they've been Sunday night sort of comfort fodder. Um, but other times they've been sort of bonk busters. You know, when you think about um, the uh, notorious Wetshire Mr. Darcy um, version, that was all, that sort of infused a bit of kind of Byron, really, and the Brontes into Austin. You know, it sort of pumped it up. And famously, I hope I'm allowed to say this, but I interviewed the um, the writer, Andrew Davis, and he said that he told Colin Firth, every time you look at Lizzie, you must imagine you've got an erection. You know, which is not really what we think about when we think about. So they were trying, they were trying to sort of, you know, sex it up. He's always uh, Andrew Davis is always complaining about that. About the men are just not, just not got enough raunch. So in another in in a version version he did of Sense and Sensibility, poor Edward Ferrers in a white shirt in the rain chopping wood. It's like oh, you know, got to make them a bit more hench. I think so. I I think all these adaptations also speak as much to the period in which they were made as the period to which as the period in which they're set. So you know that was all kind of nineties sex and property porn, wasn't it? That version of Pride and Prejudice. I suppose you can track um kind of public sensibilities about what the acceptable line is for romance through the Austen adaptations because. You know, my, one of my favourite kind of Austen factoids is that in um, the 1940s version of Pride and Prejudice, there was this open-mouthed kiss on screen between Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson. And it sort of, you know, caused this storm of sort of, you know, excitement and anticipation of when it was going to happen and what it would look like. And it's said to be the first time that there was an open-mouthed kiss on screen outside pornography. Um, so that was the kind of tipping point <laughs> in film history. And then you've got the wet shirt moment in the 1990s, and then Andrew Davis's most recent Sanditon adaptation, you know, um, the latest Austin was full, you know, nudity um, in sea bathing for men. So it's kind of like this clock of what we find acceptable in terms of the moment of romance, I think. Yes, I mean, it is also, it is, it's about polite titillation, isn't it, for the viewer? Because it's, it's sort of bound by, you know, ideas of decorum. And, you know, both the decorum of the 18th century and the uh, 18th and 19th century, but also, you know, what's allowable on TV. And I think there's always an attempt to sort of push up against uh, those limits. But I think that what in any romance, historical romance or a modern romance, what, make, uh, uh, what makes the audience really love it and commit is the old uh, UST the unresolved sexual tension. And I think a mistake is made if, too, if, if you let it all hang out too early. You know, it's got to, you, you've got to sort of, there's got to be the stolen glances there. Uh, so one of the scenes which was most loved in the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice is when uh, the lovely Matthew McFadden's uh, Mr. Darcy uh, hands her into the coach 
And then the, um, the, the camera zooms into his hand and he flexes his hand as if he's had an electric shock. And, you know, everybody was all a flutter about that. But I thought that was rather good because it showed the electricity of a touch. But because, in fact, actually, in the early uh, 19th century, men and women almost never touched um, without gloves on. So, yes. you know, that would be quite astounding, a sort of tactile event so you know you don't have to you don't have to be your characters don't have to be naked for there to be sex i remember it's one of the most striking moments in um martin scorsese's version of the age of innocence you know obviously set a bit later but when they hold hands it's honestly one of the sexiest moments in film because you can tell they're not supposed to so um is it though i mean we do get a certain kind of georgian world don't we though from all this kind of austin mania we certainly are looking primarily at the upper classes we're looking at people with a kind of you know is this sort of some people i know have a concern that this is giving us a rather a skewed view perhaps of the 18th century um i mean what do you think of that do you think there are stories that we're missing oh i'm sure there are stories that we're missing and also you know there are different takes on uh, uh austin uh, on that very point, I think a really interesting recent take is the novel Longbourn by Joe Baker, which is uh, from the point of view of the servants downstairs. It's like Downton, but without the upstairs, you know, so it <laughs> re-centres the experience. And actually, you know, the servant maid at the heart of the story has her own hopes and her own heartbreak. And so she has a centre of self and an emotional consciousness, which is just as developed as any of the Bennett girls upstairs. You're vaguely aware of what's going on upstairs, you know, what the plot points might be in Pride and Prejudice. But downstairs, after, you know, Lizzie's come stomping back from her famous walk to Netherfield, our heroine has got to clean those grubby petticoats. So, you know, she's sort of hands in the suds you know, and I think it was a, a very effective reworking. But I think the other thing to remember is that uh, when Austin is transposed on screen, everything sort of kicked up the social scale. I mean, so often um, Pemberley is presented, you know, is filmed somewhere like Chatsworth. Actually, Mr. Darcy is a private gentleman worth £10,000 a year. He's not a duke. So we, it's this kind of property sort of fantasy. Though even at the time, um, Pride and Prejudice was read as a Cinderella story. You know, that it's incredibly unlikely, actually, that, you know, uh, the daughter of a gentleman from a slightly vulgar family, you know, would ever marry into the, you know, untitled gentry. Seems... You know, it seems so unlikely, and I think it would have been read as something of a fairy story. I think the other thing to remember is that um, Austen herself was poorer than all her heroines, with the uh, exception of Fanny Price in Mansfield Park. So um, that, so actually, you often realise a lot more about social conditions from some of her peripheral characters. But she, but you can see that she's, she knows that money is everything 
and without money you have no chances and so that most of those so marriage is pretty compulsory for the the young women of of the genteel ranks so although they might be they're not the working poor um they have no other means of survival so they're you know there's there's as much gritty economics there oh you know as there might be if we were studying i don't know or, or as if we were depicting rioting in 18th century london it's you know it's economic life or death for those women as we can see you know that if you've got no funds you have no choices and so in fact one of the most moving characters for me is poor miss bates in emma who's sinking you know down the social scale and is mocked and pitied but in fact you know austin's very aware that that's her and her mother so it's all there if you take if you step back from the core couple and a Mansfield part which i find you know one of the most interesting of austin's novels is actually a, a brutal study of um psychological violence and the grinding of inferiority into the soul of a little girl i mean the heroine she's the she's the only austin heroine who begins as a girl and a puny and cowering little girl at that and someone who's made to understand that she is less than everybody else so you know servitude and hierarchy are all you know in the they they go through that novel like you know that like words in a stick of rock so it's all the more surprising that this little girl comes to have a moral consciousness and um and then can clearly judge what's going on around her but what interests me about mansfield park is the fact that um hardly anybody can manage to put it on screen in a way that jives with you know the true meaning of the novel i think because things like like inferiority insecurity piety and propriety these are just not sexy uh, for british audiences i mean i think i can imagine an asian version you know by one car way working absolutely brilliantly or by the taiwanese director ang lee but but for it to work you have to have an understanding of hierarchy subordination and how people didn't believe they weren't democratic they didn't believe that everyone was the same. And do you think we'll see a TV or film adaptation of that? That would be interesting. I would absolutely love to see a film adaptation of Longbourn. And I bet there's options on it. Just, <laughs> I'm sure just, there are. Just might not have uh, come to anything yet. But I suppose, I suppose one thing about TV, it's often very, um, well, it can be very conservative in its choices. And you know, it's the run of, and mm. so is Hollywood, and the run of like rebooting a brand. So at the moment, I gather that Perry Mason is uh, has been rebooted, uh, the young Perry Mason, and it's a bit more kind of Chinatown now, and uh, <laughs> and so who, um, and so there's all there's an appetite for that because I think there's a feeling that the audience has to know already what it's going to get 
Right, and with Jane Austen, what it thinks it's going to get is yeah. basically poor girl marries incredibly well, you know, very classic romance story. That's So hence, no Northanger Abbey, which always makes me very sad. That's my fave. Um, Actually, that is a really interesting one, isn't it? I mean, the thing about Northanger Abbey, I think, which um, sort of fails for me as a romance. I think it's a fascinating novel. But it fails for me as a romance because it's never at all clear why the hero would fall in love with the heroine. And I asked uh, John Mullen about this because, you know, he's a leading expert on Jane Austen. He said, I said, well, you know, what is the explanation? And he said, well, you know, Austen does seem to say, perhaps accurately, that, you know, the hero loved her, Catherine, because, um, because she was pretty and she loved him. You know, so <laughs> it's just not the most... It's very realistic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's not really the most satisfying... Uh, answer kind of emotionally Amanda a thing that I absolutely love that you did is this TV recreation of the Netherfield Ball um, that you did some years ago uh, where you went into incredible detail about what one of these kind of you know 1813 Jane Austen Ball would be like you know down to making the food um, you know instructing the proper dances all the proper clothes and everything um, I want a flummery by the way uh, they look delicious um, but you know that's been something that I think has been really influential with filmmakers um, and you know tell us a little bit about that project and kind of what you know what that was like recreating it in such detail. Recreating the Netherfield Ball was uh, it was a bit like planning the D-Day landings I mean, it was <laughs> such an enormous uh, logistical event with many different camera crews, marshalling extras, but also marshalling all these dance students who'd been having um, uh, lessons beforehand, the costumes, my own kids were extras, and so, you know, they were sort of in the background uh, and then when it all started coming together really I mean the fire risk was sort of shocking I mean and the air was like 99% musk perfume I thought the whole thing <laughs> was going to go up and you know sort of candles everywhere it was very hot it was very overwhelming but I think that there is something to be said as a historian for seeing and experiencing something as well as reading about it. And the things that re that came home to me, watching it kind of unfold, was just what a kind of hectic event it is. And so although there's all this attempt all the time at due decorum and formality, there's always a risk that something's, you know, going to go wrong or that, um, you know, drinks would be spilled or, you know, somebody might get a bit faint or the children would be running around crying. So the image we have of a sort of truly decorous ball, it can be a bit misplaced. But um, other things that I really noticed is uh, I hadn't thought about it before until I watched it, how much the men are on show. And how much, and there, I hadn't really thought that Mr. Darcy would be in a little pair of ballet shoes. So, <laughs> and, and they're up on the tippy toes the whole time. And so you are, you know, you'd be looking at their calves and their white stockings. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, he's a very fine gentleman, you know, they'd be looking at the whole package. So it made me realize how much of an opportunity there is for the display of manhood, as well as the display of femininity, not just to your partner, but to everybody 
watching. You know, there's considerable strain all the time. And in fact, I don't know if dancers in the 18th century stretched their muscles. I suspect they didn't. But all the 21st century dancers were all, as soon as they were off, they're like, oh, Lord. And they're all like trying to stretch out their calves, they get cramp in their calves. They are, and the other thing that really uh, came home to me, I hadn't realised, is how long a single dance is. You know, so it's 20, 25 minutes. So if you're stuck with a terrible partner, that's really torture. And although the dancers don't look as athletic as all that, actually keeping going, dancing like that for hours and hours and hours, you know, it takes a considerable toll. And, and so that makes sense to me of why, I mean, what's said of uh, In Sense and Sensibility, one of the things that recommends John Willoughby to Marianne is that he dances till two or three in the morning. So, you know, he's a sort of vigorous lusty man and by the same token the uh Lydia Bennett can easily dance till two or three in the morning so I think is that's also implying something about her sexual energy as well and I suppose just experiencing it made me realize that it was a marathon not a sprint so I think the you know, what's so important about that reconstruction is, as you say, the, the length of the dance, because in the novels, they talk about dancing, you know, twice with an eligible bachelor. And when I work on dramas now, I always make the point that actually two dances is like 35 minutes of close contact with somebody. So I think in that reconstruction that you did, you get a sense of the intensity of it, the kind of emotional power of it, but also the excitement and the energy and the kind of just the thrill of it all, which can be stripped out when you reconstruct a ball on screen into this kind of, you know, paraphernalia of etiquette. But that's not actually necessarily what it is. And I think that's what you're having a ball reconstruction really achieves for filmmakers is a sense of that thrill of it all. Um, well, I would absolutely agree with that because one thing that struck me when I practice some of the dances at a rehearsal is when you're doing some of the twirling you know a man might might have gloves but he puts his arm around your waist say he lifts his other arm and he's supposed to look into your eyes and I just found it too much you know I was blushing and then giggling and then cracking jokes because that sort of you know having some stranger look into your eyes from three inches away I mean, I, I, I found it shocking. So I would imagine in the 18th century, that could be electrifying, you know, and that might be the moment when, you know, Mr. Darcy is overwhelmed by Elizabeth Bennet's fine eyes. I mean, would we know if um, one of those novels, you know, has been optioned at all? Could it be in the making? What's the process for actually taking a book from um, kind of hard copy to screen? Very common to option books at the moment. So it's extremely popular. A lot of filmmakers are really looking for what they would see as existing intellectual property. That's a very hot term. So usually with a book like that, what will happen is that the um, the writer's agent will send it out to various kind of film production companies who, who will bid on it um, for an option. And, and what an option is really is a sort of temporary contract that they have a period of time in which they could make it into a movie. Um, at the end of the option, it expires or they exercise it, which means they start filming. Um, and at that point, the writer's very happy, gets a nice big check, and of course, starts to see their work on screen, which is for a lot of people, a fantastic dream. Some people a nightmare, uh, but let's hope in this case, a dream. Um, well, thank you so much, Amanda, for this 
big education and all things Austin and the gorgeous Georgians on screen and why it is that we love this period so much in terms of adaptations. Do you have a particular film or TV series that's a real favourite for you that you think does a brilliant service to the idea of 18th century history? The film that made me think the most about the 18th century and rethink the 18th century is actually quite a lurid film. It's um, Fellini's Casanova of 1976. So it's quite a surreal production which and it's all on the you know the Italian cine setter sets um it begins with a, a staggering carnival in Venice there's lots of comic sex in it it's in brilliant technicolor and it speaks a lot to kind of 70s ideas of sexuality I have to admit but at the same time it manages to capture the kind of strangeness and otherness and theatricality of the 18th century, because it's not obsessed with surface detail, you know, and getting lots of things right, like the costumes or the cannons. But it's interesting in trying to convey some of the peculiarities of the 18th century. So, for instance, whenever our hero, Casanova, is about to get down to uh, the job, making love, he switches on his automaton, which is an owl. <laughs> and it's true that in the 18th century, people were obsessed with automata. And in the end, poor old Casanova is so down on his luck that we're given to understand that he has sex with a mechanical doll, you know, which is gruesome, but also I think manages to convey something that not everything in the 18th century is immediately comprehensible to 21st century audiences. And I like that about it. I felt as if they'd read, you know, everything that Roy Porter had ever written on the Enlightenment, because they also want to stress that Casanova is an Enlightenment man. And he's always, he's always saying, well, uh, you know, I'm an alchemist and I'm a political scientist. And of course, he has many languages. And so I can do all of this. You know, I'm not just a swordsman. You know, I'm not just here for my great powers of lovemaking. But of course, you know, he's only really wanted for that. But so he's presented as a sort of oddity and an exquisite. So when he's going to an orgy, he prepares by, you know, slowly anointing his body and reading philosophy. And, you know, I think that that conveys this, this strange kind of conjunction in the, in the 18th century. Um, and so people in the past were not just like us, but in fancy dress. So I like films which try to think about, you know, the different uh, worldview, an entirely different structure of feeling. One thing I really liked about it is, you know, sometimes realism is abandoned altogether. So uh, when um, our hero is rowing off across the lagoon outside Venice, actually the, the sea is made of like black plastic, which has just been kind of waved up and down. But then there are other visual moments which which are stunning and convey things that which are deeply felt for me about the 18th century. And one of my favourites is when at the end in the morning, all the chandeliers in the ballroom are dropped at once and they're all like dripping wax. And it, the stateliness of it just brought home kind of, I suppose, Baroque magnificence. Um, 
artifice and just the sheer effort that goes into creating um, 18th century uh, elite life. Well, that's a wonderful choice, um, Amanda. I think we'll be adding Fellini's Casanova to the History Film Club Library. Thank you very much for that nomination. We would also like to ask you for something that's a little pet hate of yours. My pet hate is the uh, misrepresentation of Mansfield Park in modern film adaptations. I think that's exemplified by the Patricia Rosimer film version, in which obviously the character of Fanny was so hated by the filmmakers that they transformed her altogether. So instead of being a cowering little girl who's afraid of everybody and who's you know, quietly evangelical, very pious, uh, also weak, often ill in the sunshine. Um, they have made, fused the character of Fanny with that really of a younger Austin using Austin's juvenilia. So Fanny Price says things like, I am a wild beast. You know, it's the least <laughs> likely thing that Fanny Price would ever say. And she's always like running about, you know, and sort of, t so, uh, and it just reminded me how much really filmmakers want all leading characters to be Elizabeth Bennett, really. And they're not prepared to tolerate characters who don't fit our modern assumptions of what, you know, a kind of lively, sprightly, uh, sexy, and sort of quasi-feminist young character should be. So somebody who's emphatically not that, but strong in in different ways is just is obviously kind of impossible to stomach. So it left me wondering why bother doing the film at all if you have no faith in the central character. I think the other thing which is very hard for money, modern filmmakers is <laughs> money. <laughs> they just wanted yes. money. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, no, for sure. I think the other thing that's um, hard for people to relate uh, about Mansfield Park on the screen is that, you know, the, the crux of it is that the, the final moment when uh, the hero realises that the girl he thinks he loves is not for him is when she's seen to condone adultery. And of, of course, that doesn't fly in the 21st century, the way it would in the early 19th century. So you have, they usually have to find lots of ways to get around that. Um, and in, in the film version I'm talking about, actually it's not the adultery which has made the crux. It's the fact that this, uh, the fiance is seen to be wishing the brother dead so that her own um, chosen one will inherit so there's this shifting idea of what is a moral evil i remember this film was uh, empire magazine called it brookside in ripped bodices which i think possibly sums up some of what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> what the they sum up to me is that you don't need hyper realism to say something searching about the past well, I mean, I think that's a very compelling case. But I do think we should have a party with the screening of Casanova and we oh, could have yeah. a mass ball and we yes, could so. make the clubhouse with black plastic. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, we're redecorating the History Film Club as we speak. (laughs) I love all the masquerade scenes and carnival scenes were fantastic, I thought, in in, uh, Casanova. Mm. And so revealing that kind of deep love that people in the 18th century had for pastiche and performance and services. Amanda, thank you very much. I think that concludes your uh, application membership interview for the History Film Club. And I, I think I can say, Hannah, that, um, you know, I mean, it was a very rigorous test, but I passed with flying colours. Um, welcome to the club, Amanda Vickery. Delighted to have you. Round of applause. I can't see you all. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> very deeply. Amanda, you get a lot of privileges uh, when you come to our club. As we a band member, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I think as a founder member you should give me? A domino. You know, one of those cloaks that women always wore to the masquerade. Oh. That I could approach oh, yeah. the History yeah. Film Club incognita. <laughs> and then whip off my mask. Actually, I think must all have those, right? I'm ordering a job lot. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Amanda Vickery. It's been fantastic speaking to you about Georgians, the 18th century, all of this delightful stuff on film. Um, Thank you very much, audience, for joining us too. We'll see you next week at the History Film Club. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex Watunzelman, Hannah Gregg and Amanda Vickery. It's produced by Nat Tapley for Gloaming Productions. 